Welcome to Arbel Ministries podcast with Mark Whitehead. Today we're going to look at Numbers chapter 5. But before we get into Numbers 5, we need to review what has already happened in the book of Numbers. See, in Numbers 1, the army of Israel was counted. And this set the stage for the people that would be launched by the Lord into the promised land. And then we get to Numbers chapter 2, where the tribes were organized. And if you remember, there are three tribes to the east, and three tribes to the south, and three tribes to the west, and three tribes to the north. And the central feature of the camp is the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies is the ark. And that's where the presence of God dwelt. So you see this camp around this picture of holiness, God Himself. And then we get to Numbers 3 and 4, and as we, as we discussed in our podcast, these Levites and the priests, uh, th- this, these people that were to attend to the holy place were counted, and their duties were assigned. So God has set the stage by saying, this is where I'm going to dwell in the middle of the camp, Here's who's going to dwell around it, and here's the way it's going to operate. Now we get to Numbers 5. And in Numbers 5, God begins setting some rules to make sure that the camp would stay holy. And he made, the, over, the overview of Numbers 5 is this. Verses 1 through 4 talk about people who have physical issues that need separation from the camp because of their physical defilement. So those people need to have a place outside the camp. Then we get to verses 5 through 10, and it gives instructions about people who are having problems with one another within the camp. Because if the people were going to be holy, they needed to learn to get along with one another. And so he talks about what it looks like to reconcile with one another for the purpose of maintaining that holy camp. And then the the third um, group of people that that he talks about uh, is in verses 11 through 31, where he talks about marital faithfulness. Because see, purity and holiness of his people was essential if they were going to meet with him in the tabernacle. So he needed to set some ground rules to say, I need you to be holy. If you want me to be here, if you want to commune with me, you need to learn what it looks like to be holy. So let's look at uh, just a few verses here starting in Numbers chapter 5. Verse 1 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of the Lord did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus, the sons of Israel did. 
quite a few years ago, my brother and his wife were coming to our house. They had never been to our house. We had moved in uh, relatively recently before they came, and, and they had never been to our house to see where we live. Do you think, since they had never seen our house, do you think we wanted it to be clean? Absolutely. And we knew that they would be getting the grand tour of the entire house. So, we wanted the entire house to be spotless. We didn't want to just throw things uh, under beds or under couches or in closets because we knew that they would get the grand tour and we wanted the entire thing to be clean. And just to let you in on a little secret, if you came to my house today, pretty good chance it would not be in the same condition than it was that day that my brother and his wife came. More than likely, we would shut the bedroom door. Um, that way, we wouldn't have to clean every nook and cranny, and we could concentrate on cleaning just the areas you would see. But we knew my brother would be taking this grand tour, so we made every space every corner of the house spotless. Now, I want you to look at a few things um, based on the verses we just read. Just to continue to, to keep this phrase in front of you, I want you to, to think about the way Numbers 5 opens. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. And we've mentioned this multiple times already in the podcast. Hebrew expression is way to beer. It is the theme of the book of Numbers, that God speaks to his people. He took them into the desert, into the wilderness, so that they would learn what it looks like to open their ears to his voice. And here we go at the beginning of this chapter with another expression of way to bear, that God is speaking then we get to verse 2 and it says, Command the sons of Israel, they send away from the camp every leper, everyone having discharge, and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Why? Verse 3, they, so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. So God calls um, the, the Israelites to send away those who are unclean from the camp. The first group that he mentions is those who have leprosy. In Leviticus 13, um, there is a detailed discussion of leprosy. And, and let me just go ahead and tell you, this Hebrew word in the Old Testament is it's called sarat. Sarat. Okay, and it's a general word for a skin condition that can be anything from psoriasis to a fungal infection. The leprosy we think of today, which we call Hansen's disease, the earliest reports of that disease is around 600 B.C. And we do have records in India, China, China and Egypt of that leprosy like we think about it, of Hansen's disease. But back in the book of Numbers, there are no records that this word means anything like we think about leprosy. It's a general term. It's all-encompassing. It can be any type of rash, essentially. So if a person has a rash, even dry skin, their job was to be separated from the camp. 
they were considered unclean. They could not be near God, and they needed to have a place outside the camp. The second group of people mentioned as being unclean is everyone having a discharge. Leviticus 15 discusses this discharge in much greater detail. But if someone had an infection causing discharge, such as gonorrhea, okay, that's, most scholars believe that's the most common thing that would cause this discharge talk, that is talking about in Numbers 5. If you had something like that, you needed to be removed from camp. See, they needed isolation. If God is in the business of trying to preserve the holiness of His people, He needed to remove these people so that they wouldn't continue to contaminate and to spread their illness and make other people unclean. So He says, if you have a discharge, a physical discharge, you need to have a place outside the camp. And the third group of people mentioned as being unclean here in Numbers 5 was anyone who touched a dead person. We'll get to this in greater detail as we reach Numbers chapter 19. But listen, these people did not become unclean simply because they touched something unsanitary. It's not like they touched a dead person and, oh, that's gross. That person may have some bacteria. They they must be unclean. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with some sort of bacterial cause. And God wanted these people to understand that I want you to be ritually pure. And when you touch a dead person, you're not ritually pure. You're impure. See, if God's holy, anything that was ritually impure needed to be removed from those around the camp. He needed those around him to be holy, just like he is holy. And he said, if if you've made yourself richly impure, you need to be separated at that time. Now understand this whole thing. What would happen? What would happen if those people around him were ritually impure? Well, we just read that in verse 3. It says that they would defile the place where he lived. And this this Hebrew word for defile here, it means to make unclean and unfit for use. So essentially it's saying that my tabernacle, the place where I dwell, will not be suitable for what it was intended to be used for. So you can't come here and make sacrifices to make things right. You can't come here and commune with me like I want if you're ritually impure. It will defile the camp. God wanted the unclean people to be outside the camp because if they were there, the whole system doesn't work. It's defiled and it's unfit for its intended purpose. Now imagine, going back to my illustration of when my brother came and his wife, imagine him coming to me before he comes and he says, Mark, you know what? I'm only going to come over if you clean your house. It needs to be spotless. And if you do that, 
okay, then I'm going to come over. But if you don't, I'm staying away. See, he'd never say that. But you know what? If that was my brother's instructions, if that was what he said that, that I would need to do for him to, to come and be with me, I would do it in a heartbeat. See, that's what you do when you love somebody. If they say, these are the stipulations for me coming and being near you, guess what happens? If you love them, you do it. You do it in a heartbeat. And in the same way, God says, I want you to clean up the camp if you want me to be there. He wanted to feel at home in the tabernacle where there was holiness around him. He wanted to feel welcomed. And if sin and uncleanness was in the camp, it was not a suitable home for him. So he looked at the camp and he said, I need you to clean it up. I want a clean camp if you want me to be there. Now, just imagine what must have it been like to have God continuously dwell in their midst. I mean, if, if God told you to clean up the camp back then, would you do it? If he said, if you want me to dwell in your midst, I need you to make sure people are ritually pure. I need you to remove anything that is impure outside the camp. Would you take that seriously? I would hope you would. Because God himself says, if you want me in your midst, then I need you to be clean. And I, I, the thing of today, as, new, as believers in Jesus Christ, God looks at us and he says, you know what? I need you to be holy, just like I am holy. That's 1 Peter 1.16. He looks at us and he says, I am living inside you. That's, for, that's 1 Corinthians 3.16. I, I want to feel at home because I'm in you. And he, he basically asks us, just walk in me. Let me guide you and allow me to remove your dirt, your uncleanness. That's 1 John 1, 7. He wants to feel at home in our heart. See, don't just close the bedroom door and clean up certain rooms of your house spiritually. He wants every part to be clean and to be spotless. Are there areas right now that need to be cleaned out in your life? And you know it. If you've asked Jesus in your heart, you have the Holy Spirit living within you continuously every second of every day, and He wants to feel at home. What are the things that need to be removed from the camp? Now, when God told the people to remove these unclean things from the camp, did they do it? Absolutely. Look at verse 4. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. They wanted God to be there. Now remember, the first nine and a half chapters of the book of Numbers are marked with obedience. 
Soon, we'll discuss times when they were not always obedient, but here, they were obedient. They started very well. They did exactly what God told them to do. Now, let's look at the next section. In verses 5 through 11, we see the second people that, that God addresses when it comes to this holiness. And I think this right here is something we've got to understand. As the body of Christ, we overlook this part way too often. So let me read it to you, and we're going to discuss this. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, way to beer, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him who he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be, may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the, uh, for the priest, besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. If the camp was to be holy, God knew he needed to address issues with sin among each other, the people in the camp. Look carefully at verse 6. Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord. And that person is guilty. So, so it says this. If someone sins against another person, who is he unfaithful to according to verse 6? He's unfaithful to the Lord. So the one who committed the sin had to confess his sin and make full restitution for his sin. That's verse 7. Now, that restitution, we see, includes a guilt offering. Way back in Leviticus 6, it talks about this guilt offering. And in Leviticus 6, verse 2 says, when a person sins and acts, acts unfaithfully against the Lord. Now, un understand that word unfaithfully means you, you're acting in breach against God. It's a breach against Yahweh. That's what the word means. And the text says that that breach against God himself happens when someone deceives someone or when somebody robs someone or extorts someone or, or someone um, who finds some, something someone lost and, and they lie about it. So, so you see that in these instances... Leviticus 6 says, when you do something against someone else, you rob them, you extort them, you, you lie about something against them. It's not a sin against that person only. The initial sin is against God himself. It's against God himself. And, and that seems odd to us. Like, why would God say that if I lie to one of my friends that that is not a sin against that. Yeah, it's hurting them if I'm lying to them. But first and foremost, it's a sin against God. But you got to understand their culture to get why this is such a big deal. 
If someone is suspected of deceiving, robbing, or extorting someone, in their culture at this time, they took what was called a solemn, excuse me, a solemn oath of innocence. And they believed if you lied under this oath, God would activate the curse implied by that oath. So if you lied under the oath, you were swearing falsely in God's name. So that's the culture they're living in. If someone did have something like this come on, they would take this solemn oath of innocence. And and if you're lying, it's a lie against God. Because you're swearing in God's name, you're telling the truth. So just imagine, you're living uh, before the time of Christ, you're in Israel, and let's say you're having a hard time making ends meet. So you go and you steal $100 from another person. See, under the law, you would first have to confess your sin, and you'd you'd have to pay $100 plus 20% back. That's what the text says in Numbers chapter 5. So you'd pay $120 back to the person you stole from, okay? But after this, you made a blood sacrifice, a guilt offering, which did two things. It reconciled you with the person you offended. So that person I stole that money from, it would be the reconciliation blood to pay for that sin. But it also reconciled me to God because understand what I just did was an offense against God. And you see this idea in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. See, God essentially says, don't make an offering to me unless you have made things right with one another. And it's this idea that you have to understand you are one body in Christ. And and don't try to come to me and offer me offerings and praise me if the one body is not truly one body. So he says, you need to be reconciled to one another if you're ever going to be reconciled with God. Restitution always accompanies genuine repentance. If you have some issue with someone else that's not resolved, God says that is an offense against him. Do you understand how big this is to him that we are truly one body in Christ under one banner? That is so important. Numbers 5, God wanted his people to realize the importance of being reconciled to one another so that they could have a proper relationship with him. Don't you think it breaks God's heart to see his body divided? Maybe today there's there's a relationship that needs to be repaired and you know it. You're listening to this and maybe the first step you need to take is to be reconciled with that person. See, understand your faithfulness to the Lord is at stake. Will you take the steps necessary to be reconciled? Now, the rest of the chapter, the rest of Numbers 5, verses 11 through 31, deal with this test for an unfaithful wife. So what, first of all, what happens if a woman is caught in the act of committing adultery. Well, 
She and the man are both put to death. That's Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. So this, this test for an unfaithful wife is for those where the, the husband says, you know what, I, I think my wife may be doing some things she shouldn't be doing, right? So if she's not caught in the act, there's a test. And this is kind of a strange test, but we need to understand some, some details about it. See, here's what happens, and we're not going to read all those verses, but here's what those verses say. The husband would take his wife to the priest and they'd make an offering, okay? So the priest would get some of the holy water. And this is a strange thing, but he would get some dust from the floor of the tabernacle and he would mix it with that holy water. And then it says the priest would loosen the hair of the woman. By the way, that's this sign of, of mourning or disgrace in the Bible. But... Um, He's, she's put under an oath, like we talked about a minute ago by the priest. The oath says that if she committed adultery, the water would curse her. It would make her womb miscarry. It would make her abdomen swell. And the priest would write these curses on a scroll and wash them off in that holy water. Now, then he takes the offering. He does a wave offering before the, before the Lord where he takes it and he waves it back and forth. We see that in other places in the scripture too. And he offers the grain offering on the altar. The woman drinks and everyone waits. They're going to see if she were innocent or guilty. Now understand with this test, who is responsible for giving the verdict of guilty or innocence? It's God. See, it, it's not a test of pitting two people against one another and they give both of their accounts and, okay, whoever makes the best uh, case is going to be uh, innocent. This protected the wife from some jealous husband that made false accusations. See, God would be the one giving the verdict, not the jealous husband. You know, this is, there's something else to this because this test, you're using two holy objects. Did you see that? One's holy water. You can't just go into the tabernacle and drink holy water and live. The other is dust from the tabernacle floor. Understand, that was considered holy, holy ground. So this woman is drinking ritually sacred water, and with it, there is this holy dust added. You can't drink that unless you are pure. If there's impurity and, and your body touches those holy objects, you are dead. So this woman better be pure and better be holy if she would walk away from this test. There's actually an entire section in rabbinic literature dedicated to this point. And they even say, this is the only test in Scripture where God has to perform a miracle for this person to live. He literally has to perform a miracle that she's putting these holy objects within her. And the only way she lives is if she's innocent. Look at verse 27. Numbers 5, verse 27. Here's what it says. When he made her drink the water, then it came. It shall come about if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband that the water 
which brings a curse, will go into her and cause bitterness. And her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away. And the woman will become a curse among the people. It says the woman's abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away. That's New American Standard. Other translations actually talk about the woman's womb wasting away. And why the difference? You have to understand there's a Hebrew expression here that really is talking more about her womb. Now, literally, it says her thigh. Literally, it says her thigh. But it is a euphemism for procreative organs, okay? If you read the account of Genesis 24, Abraham has his servant put his hand under his, it says, thigh, as his servant promised to find a, the, right way, the right wife for Abraham's son. Now, I don't know if you've ever pictured this story in your mind, but it wasn't really Abraham's thigh that the servant put his hand under. It's a Hebrew expression. So, so as we see this test for an unfaithful wife, understand that if she's guilty, she becomes absolutely barren. She is cut off from the Abrahamic covenant. And, and if, in that culture, if you're barren, you're the subject of shame and ridicule the rest of your life. There was a time in the Old Testament that we see something very similar to this test performed. Back in Exodus 32, uh, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, if you remember. He sees people dancing and partying, and he sees a golden calf. And then he does something pretty odd. Exodus 32, verses 19 and 20, it says this, It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf, which they had made, and burned it with fire, and ground it to powder. And he scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Do you think the Israelites, every time they went through this test of an unfaithful wife, do you think their minds went back to Exodus 32? I think, it, I think they did. I believe every time this test was, perform, was performed for an unfaithful wife, it served as a reminder of Israel's own past sins. They had been an unfaithful wife to the Lord. What happened on Mount Sinai was not simply God giving the law to Moses. Every element of a Jewish wedding happened on Mount Sinai. He married his people that day. And when Moses comes down, his bride was committing adultery at the wedding. And what he does is he makes an, a test for the unfaithful wife that day. So, I think every time they had to do this test with an unfaithful wife or test for an unfaithful wife, their mind went back to that day in Exodus. Would they be a faithful bride going forward with God? So in Numbers 5, God knew there needed to be purity among the community. And He focused on three types of purity. Physical purity, we saw that in the first four verses. Purity in relationships with one another. And purity in marriage. Listen, 
he still wants purity from his followers. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. Are there things in your life that need to be removed so that you can be holy? Do you have relationships that need to be repaired today? And lastly, if you're married, is your marriage a picture to the world of that relationship of Christ and the church? That's Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. What are the things today that God is convicting you of so that you can be the bride that He's called you to be? Thank you so much for listening to Numbers 5. I, I just love walking through this text with you, and I look forward to our next time together.